When I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, I had the opportunity to eat authentic Chinese food, the real thing. One of our classmates in Dr. Dwight Pentecost's class invited all of us to go to a Chinese restaurant in the, in the Dallas area, in Richardson, Texas, and to join him, any of us who could make it, at his own expense at, at this Chinese restaurant. I thought we were probably going to one of those places where the food seemed more at home in one of those square white cardboard containers <laughs> than any place else. But when I arrived at the restaurant, the first thing I noticed that all the signs, all the menus were all in Chinese characters. Nothing in English in the whole place. Even the blackboard in the foyer where they'd written with colored chalk, which I assume was the special of the day, was in Chinese. And I was the first one of our group to arrive, and so I was there by myself, and so for several minutes I sat in the foyer of the restaurant. Everything I heard, everybody talking, was in a language I didn't understand. Everything I saw was completely foreign to me. There wasn't an English word anywhere to be seen anywhere, and I wondered if the polite folks working there even understood me. And while I was sitting there, I thought of, of a great movie called The End of the Sixth Happiness, the true story of Gladys Elward, who was a missionary to China during World War II, and she led over a hundred orphans to safety over the rugged mountains during that time. But there's one scene in the movie, early in the movie, where Gladys is, is new to China, and she has a co-worker, just a really neat Chinese guy, and she decides she's going to go into town by herself. And her co-worker said to her before she left, remember, you are foreign devil here. <laughs> And so I was sitting there thinking, yeah, maybe I don't feel quite like a foreign devil, but I have no idea how this is going or what's going on. And, and after everyone arrived, and it was time to begin my, the meal, and we sat down around a really nice table, uh, my classmates spoke in Chinese to the people at the restaurant. The good news was that we didn't have to order anything. Our friend, our classmate, had pre-ordered everything at his own expense, and they just kept bringing course after course of food, just one thing after another. You didn't even have time to finish one thing before something else would come. They just kept bringing it time after time. The, the bad news was that most of the time, probably almost all the time, I had no idea what was being brought to the table. I didn't want to bother the host too much, and he was sitting across a large table from me. For, so for the most part, I tried it all. Most of the food seemed to be seafood of some kind. Maybe there was some duck, there was some chicken. Some of it was probably vegetarian, but, but who knows? Some of the things had, seemed to have legs or claws, really. <laughs> so I decided on two basic rules. I didn't eat anything that looked like an appendage, especially a claw, or anything that seemed to be looking back at me. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed the meal. Everything really was pretty good. Some of it was just wonderful. The problem was I couldn't tell you what was good and what wasn't good because I didn't know what any of it was or what it was called. I could comment on the atmosphere of the restaurant, the friendliness of the cooks and the nice people who waited on us. I, I, I could tell you a thing, couldn't tell you very much about what I ate or how good it was because I, I didn't know what the words were. I, I couldn't tell you how it compared to other authentic Chinese food because I had nothing to base it on. I didn't know how to evaluate what had taken place. I didn't know the terminology. And I had very little previous experience upon which to make a judgment. 
And to this day, I really do think I like the inauthentic better, but I don't really know. I, I love the Chinese food we get around here because that's what I'm used to. But I really don't understand what I might be still missing. When people attend a worship service at a church, they may respond to the worship and the preaching the same way. They've, they've grown used to a certain style or some things may be brand new to them and they there's a lot of people who have rarely experienced the authentic or they expect certain things that might be to their liking. But for the most part, it's really never been explained to them. What, what is the music supposed to do? What, what is the sermon supposed to accomplish? Most listeners react to the emotional highs. They enjoy the stories. They enjoy the illustrations. They laugh at the pastor's jokes sometimes. Yeah, one of the things that I really experienced, it's kind of off the subject, but it's kind of interesting about how people respond to the Word of God. When I preached in a church that had two services, we had two large services, about 800 people in each service. And in the first service, the 830 service, I, I would tell a story that was humorous and people would laugh. And so, so, you know, I'd let them laugh and pause. I'd get to the second service, I'd tell the exact same story, and then I would pause and nobody laughed. <laughs> and people would look at me, Pastor, what are you doing? Because every group of people is different. But people listen to the emotional highs. They enjoy those kind of things. They're, they're touched by their emotions. They jot down a catchy phrase or two, or if they jot down anything at all, and they, they judge the success of a sermon or worship service on, on who knows what. Years ago, President Calvin Coolidge returned home from church one Sunday, and he was asked by his wife what the minister talked about. And Coolidge responded, he was a man of few words, he said, sin. When his wife pressed him as to what the preacher said about sin, Coolidge replied, I think he was against it. <laughs> Preachers bring to the table as they serve up God's word concepts like salvation, redemption, sanctification, sin, righteousness, justification, or at least they should. A lot of speakers try to avoid those kind of subjects today, especially about sin. I, I know ministers at very large churches say, oh, I never talk about sin because I want to be encouraging. Or they talk about being saved, but people wonders from what and, and, and why. Uh, before Nissan was Nissan, it was Datsun. Remember that? And the commercials, Datsun saves. Saves from what? Same time, there were big signs that said Jesus saves. While many listeners may leave a worship service like this with few fragments, a little bit in a cardboard container to take home, commenting on the atmosphere, commenting on the friendless what they liked or didn't like. And in many cases, maybe all they were served was fast food or even junk food. And they wonder why they feel, leave feeling like they're just not nourished at all. The fastest growing religious segment in America right now, the fastest growing religious segment, a group of religious people, are what they call the duns. They're done with it. They are Christians who used to be active in church. They used to be in leadership, but they are permanently done with church. They see absolutely no reason to go to that place ever again. Maybe it was something that happened there or whatever, but uh, they're, they're done with it. In our study of Nehemiah chapter 8 today and next week, 
as we look at the first revival recorded in Scripture. We're going to be looking at, from God's Word, how the Word of God is to be served and how it is to be received. Every Bible in history and every true, revi every true revival in history and every revival in Scripture begins with the serving, the preaching of God's Word. If people are to come to faith in Jesus Christ, if believers are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are to mature, become mature and become more and more transformed into the image of Christ, if we as a church are to become who God wants us to be and do what he has called us to do, if we are to experience revival even, then the word of God must be preached and it must be taught in God's prescribed way that produces God's prescribed result. And the listeners must also hear God's word and respond to it correctly. So today we're going to be looking at from Nehemiah chapter 8, the preacher and the word of God, expository preaching. And then next Sunday with the last four ver or the verses 4 through 8 of Nehemiah chapter 8, it's going to be the listener and the word of God expository listening, expository listening. What is the preacher's responsibility and what is the listener's responsibility? Both are clearly delineated for us in Nehemiah chapter 8. God's word does not leave us in the dark about this, nor does he give us several options to choose from when it comes to the preaching of his word and how we as people are supposed to listen. Now, I don't know what most of you think of when I use the phrase expository preaching. It might be something, a phrase that you're used to or you haven't heard very often, might be familiar with it, but do you really know what it is? It would be interesting, and I kind of put this in the, the sermon notes this morning, in the outline, to have each person here this morning write a definition of expository preaching in the sermon outline. You say, you see that there, expository preaching is, and then there's a short line. I guarantee you, you cannot fit it on that short, <laughs> on that short line. But we'd have a lot of different answers. Maybe we'd have a few question marks. It might be helpful if I named a few well-known expository preachers. John MacArthur. Ever heard of him? Chuck Swindoll. Alistair Begg, who's one of my favorites. I like his Scottish accent. Love to listen to him. When he's preaching and when it's not in a teaching setting, there's R.C. Sproul. And then there's two greats from another time that's still on the radio. J. Vernon McGee of Through the Bible. And just not too long ago, they've put John G. Mitchell on, founder of Multnomah University. Both those great men of God have gone home to be with the Lord. David Jeremiah, black pastor Tony Evans, which we don't get on all the stations around here, but Tony Evans is on uh, the Christian Satellite Network. And uh, many of us might agree with John Stott, who wrote in his book, Between Two Worlds. He says, all true preaching is expository preaching. If it's true preaching, it's expository preaching. I'm not going to give you a definition this morning. We may come to a definition next Sunday. But what I want to do is show you from God's word what it is, and then if we come, but we'll come to an understanding and then maybe a definition. Because thankfully, the written word of God doesn't leave us in the dark on this. Concerning the importance, the role, the spiritual nourishment that comes from expository preaching. So turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8 again. Nehemiah chapter 8, the first verse, page 567. And I want to read these again to have them in our minds. 
Verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 8 introduces us to a scribe and a priest by the name of Ezra. Verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the morning square, before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for, the, for this purpose. We're introduced to Ezra. Ezra was both a scribe and he was a priest. But he's remembered primarily as an expositor of the word of God to the community of the faithful. As an expositor, Ezra models a commitment followed by men of God who have read the scriptures, studied the scriptures, explained it to others, what God would have them believe and what God would have them do in service to him. Ezra received a mandate from the people gathered at the water gate outside the newly built walls of Jerusalem. They told him to bring the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, for the purpose of reading it to them and explaining it to them. Now, it's fair to ask the question, why Ezra? Why did they ask Ezra to do it? Why did the people ask Ezra to read and explain the scriptures at this critical juncture in their community life where they have just finished the walls and now God is going to build his people? Now, chapter 8 contains the first mention of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, but Ezra was well known to the people of Judah. They knew who he was during Nehemiah's time. So turn back to the book of Ezra again, Ezra chapter 7, the book right before. In fact, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah was compiled as one book. It was called Ezra and Nehemiah, and they were because they were contemporaries, they lived there at the same time. Now, 13 years before Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, Ezra, 13 years before, had led a group of priests, Levite singers, and gatekeepers, and temple servants from Babylon to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. So Ezra was a leader of the people. Now, notice verse 7 of Ezra, or verse 6 of Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7 verse 6 says that Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses. This Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses which the Lord God of Israel had given. We would say Ezra knew his Bible. He knew his pages away, he knew his way around the pages of scripture, but that was probably true of many or if not all the scribes and priests of Ezra and Nehemiah's day. Ezra was a leader, he knew his Bible. But we can also say the same thing about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a leader, and he knew his Bible. In fact, he had called people who were cheating others out of their money during that hard time. He called them to obey God's word. So Nehemiah knew his Bible. So what, may, what was it about Ezra that qualified him to read God's word to the people, explain it to them, and show them how to obey it? No, it wasn't that Ezra was a priest. It wasn't that he had a clerical collar, as it were, a priestly robe. Lots of priests were skilled in the law of Moses. It wasn't that he was a scribe. 
There was lots of scribes. By definition, a scribe was somebody skilled in the law of Moses. They were all experts in the law. Look at verse 10 of Ezra chapter 7. Here we see the biblical qualification for a faithful expositor of God's word. Verse 10. For Ezra had set in his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. In the eyes of men, several of others, elder, or other Ezra's qualifications might have made him qualified for the work. He was a leader. He was the one who obtained permission from King Artaxerxes for the religious officials to return to Jerusalem. Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses. He had magisterial leadership ability. He had a commanding stature, what we used to call a pulpit presence. He had been exposed to both Israel and Persia's aristocracy. We could say in our day he'd been to the White House on many occasions. Sounds kind of like the guy you'd like to call to be behind your pulpit in a church. But at this important time in Israel's history, God chose Ezra because of Ezra's personal commitment to study, to live out, and to teach God's word. It says there in verse 10 that Ezra had set his heart, set his heart to the ministry of the word of God. Ezra set his heart, his inner being, the core of who he is, constantly towards the goal of Bible exposition. Now, to say that this was Ezra's ministry misses the emphasis of the verse. This was Ezra's life. It was his life. The word of God was his all-consuming passion. Little else commanded the attention of Ezra, like the task that God had set before him. Ezra gave his life to study, to practice, and to teach God's law. That's our next three points. Study, practice, and teach God's law. So first of all, we see that Ezra dedicated himself to the study of the Word of God. Ezra qualified for the mission God had for him because he had a deep desire to exposit God's Torah. The word exposit means to explain. It, it's similar to the word expose. Can you hear it? Exposit, to expose. We are to expose the meaning of the text. We are to take the biblical text and say this is what it means to expose its meaning. Expository preaching and teaching and study exposes the meaning of the Bible. The expositor studies the passages of Scripture in order to determine its meaning. And Ezra dedicated himself to learning and interpreting the Word of God, Genesis through Deuter Deuteronomy in this case, the Torah. Now the Bible preserves no record of Ezra spending the long and arduous hours laboring in God's Word. The details of his training, especially as an understudy in Babylon, who did he study under? He'd given his whole life to this. Perhaps beginning at a tender age, we just don't know anything about that. What the Bible clearly depicts in Ezra is a man resolved to study God's word. In the New Testament sense, Ezra was one where as a way of life, he followed 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not seem to be ashamed and handles accurately the word of truth. The word translated study means to give diligence as a workman, as a laborer. Biblical exposition is hard work. It's hard work. Ezra's earlier priestly and and scribal preparation, which must have been quite extensive, 
did not exhaust his desire to study more. Now, for those who may be considering or wondering if God has called them to preach, to a preaching ministry, called them to a pulpit ministry, this is essential. Because he must have the desire to study and to dig deeply into God's word. The desire to get into God's word in a way that it gets into you first and then you can bring it to your hearers. The consuming desire to study is, is part of the pastor's calling, the preacher's calling, because it's necessary for that calling. The preacher must be a person who can stand the long, lonely hours with open Bible and a diligent mind. But a clear understanding of the message alone was not enough. Ezra also dedicated himself to study the Word of God, and then he dedicated himself to practice the Word of God. In other words, to do it. Practice simply means to do it. Ezra obeyed God in whatever his exposition of Scripture told him what to do. Ezra was not satisfied to be well-informed about God's law. In Jerusalem at this time, in Ezra and Nehemiah's time, the people of God had come to a critical juncture. They were going to hear God's word read. They were going to hear it explained. They were going to hear it interpreted. They were going to hear how to apply it. The exposition would call them to obey the word of God, in this instance, in a very specific way. On a particular day in the seventh month of a particular year, they were to understand the application of God's word was to celebrate the Feast of Booths in obedience to God's word. So I want to go back to that, to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31, the 10th verse, page 245. Because in chapter 31, the 10th verse, these are literally Moses' last words to the people of Israel. Because after chapter 31 in Deuteronomy, Moses commissions Joshua as his replacement, and then Moses dies. In verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 11, through Moses, God commanded the people to celebrate the festival or the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was a week-long celebration where the people stayed in temporary booths or shelters, and for a week, they celebrated they were to celebrate and remember God's provision for the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. It was also celebrated at the end of the harvest season, and so they celebrated much as we do with our Thanksgiving celebration. They thanked God for his, his provision for the, for the next winter, the next year. And it also coinc coincided with the forgiveness of debts every seven years where everything was to be forgiven. And in verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses stands before the people, right further to go in the promised land, and tells them how this feast is supposed to go. In verse 10, Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths. And then he goes on to say in verses 11 and 12 something that is very similar, remarkably similar to what we see over in Nehemiah and Ezra's time. When Ezra stood before the people in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 11, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read the law in front of, the, of all Israel in their hearing. Does that sound familiar? That's what's going on at the Watergate. 
Assemble the people, the men and the women and children, an alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all that is written in the law. To hear, to learn, to fear the Lord your God, to do all that is written. That is the passion of expository preaching. The passion. At the water gate. Now as we move back over to, to Ezra and Nehemiah's time. At a very difficult moment that lay ahead of them for the people, Ezra proved himself to be committed to living out the ethical and theological principles that he learned from the st his stone study of God's word. Ezra himself not only adhered to God's word, but he also expected those to whom he expounded it to do the same. In fact, when we get to verse 12 of Nehemiah chapter 8, you don't need to turn to it, we will see that the people responded to Ezra's exposition of the scriptures by obeying God in a particular way for the first time in over 150 years. They kept the Feast of Booths that Moses had told the people to keep back in, in Deuteronomy. So Ezra's zeal, both for himself and for others, is to do what they learned from God's word. And thirdly, Ezra dedicated himself to teach the Word of God. Ezra's zeal was rooted in what the Apostle Paul called in the New Testament to exhort in sound doctrine. Literally, the word sound doctrine, if we looked at them literally, it would be healthy teaching. Exhort people in healthy teaching. Healthy in the sense that it brings nourishment, spiritual nourishment. In verse 7 of Nehemiah chapter 8, therefore, we also find some men and women and other Levites who are out among the crowd as Ezra, after Ezra is preached. Verse 7. And he says, Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. These men were out in the crowd. That's what it means when it says the people remained in their place. You know, after Ezra, uh, Ezra expounded the word of God, taught the word of God, these men moved down into the crowd to meet with people to explain further the law to people. Now, there's a couple of things that work here. One was that the law of God, the Torah, was written in what language? Hebrew. It was written in Hebrew. By this time... Most, if not all, the people in Judea spoke Aramaic. Aramaic. That's the, that's the language that our Lord spoke when he was on, on this earth. It was the common language. Aramaic was an idiom or a dialect of Hebrew that they had learned in Babylon and brought back to, to Judea, to Jerusalem. The letters were the same. They looked the same. But there would have been Hebrew words and Hebrew phrases that were totally unfamiliar to them. Their language and the use of that language had changed. I tucked in your bulletin this morning something that maybe you noticed and maybe you didn't. A full page. Because you'll find a page in your bulletin this morning that is a photostatic copy, a page from the 1611 King James Bible. It happens to be the first letter or the letter to the Hebrews, the first chapter of the letters. And if you, if you take a look at that and you know, well, something's kind of fuzzed because it's, it's a photocopy and there's always a loss in that. 
But as you look at that, you might say, okay, I'd really have a hard time reading that. You know, verse 13 there, but to which of the angels fought he uh, any, oh, my, uh, until they, my uh, foot. You know, I have found, especially because I like to read William Tyndale's translation of the Bible from the 16th century. And it's even more Old English than, than this is. And I find that if I read it out loud, it makes a whole lot more, more sense to me. But most people do not realize that the King, the authorized version, the King James Version of the Bible, 1611, has been revised dozens of times. And most of the King James Bibles, in fact, all of those, almost all those in print today, are really the standard text of 1769. Uh, it was revised and printed at Oxford and Cambridge, and that's the one. If you go in and buy a King James Bible today, that's probably the one that you get. Uh, trying to think of which, I think it was Thomas Nelson in the 1970s came out with what's called the, the self-pronouncing one, where they, they put dashes and names. You know, that would really help me on this thing, <laughs> Nehemiah, you know, but... Uh, you know, but it's still the, the same text. You know, Bible translators have done us a great service in translating the Word of God and keeping it in a form and in a language that we can understand. For the people gathered at the water gate, it would have been very much like us having to hear the book of Hebrew, Hebrews and explained and expounded from, from this text right here. And so... Ezra read from the book of the law, he explained it, he expounded it, so they understood it, and then the teachers moved down in to the crowd to help them out with some of those things doing with the language. Now, now, the other thing at work here is that if the people were to truly understand the scriptures and how to apply it to their lives, it took teaching in a smaller group setting where they could interact back and forth, where they could ask questions where there could be practical discussion, questions and answers to. You know, put simply, if all the people get is what they hear from the podium, it's really not enough to produce true life change and obedience to God. They needed a smaller group setting, much like what we have in our Sunday school class and our, our Bible study groups. Now, the word translated explained, where these men went down into the crowd and explained the law of God to the people, means to distinguish, to give insight, to teach. So here's what was going on at the water gate. Ezra opened the book of the law and read a portion while the people stood. He expounded God's word. He exposed its meaning to the people. He interpreted it and gave the sense so that the people understood it. And then these teachers made, other teachers made their way down into the crowd to explain it further and teach the people how to apply God's word to their lives and live by it. Ezra dedicated himself to teach the word of God, to exhort the people, to expound it, and to give them the healthy doctrine that they needed. But the people also needed to be taught in a more individual way in a group setting. Back to expository preaching again, because we find the same description of expository preaching that we see from Moses, that we see from Ezra. Over in the New Testament, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. If you'd like to turn there, page 1450 in the, the Bible in the racks. 1 Timothy chapter 4, the 13th verse. 
This is right after Paul exhorts Timothy, and he says, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness. Uh, and he exhorts Timothy in verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy, as a preacher, as an expositor of God's word, here is what you are supposed to do. Verse 13, Paul says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Isn't that the exact same thing that we've been looking at from the Old, from the Old Testament? So turn over to Paul's second letter to Timothy for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 4. At the first verse, 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. And over in 2 Timothy, Paul is saying to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. Now, is this a solemn charge or what? I'm going to charge you. You're in God's presence. I'm in God's presence. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. This, this has judgment consequences. What are you supposed to do, Timothy? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That is when it's popular, when it's not popular, when people are listening, when they're not listening. What? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with grace, patience, and instruction. For the time will come while they will not endure healthy teaching, literally. Teaching that brings spiritual nourishment. But wanting to have their ears tickled. Literally, it says in the Greek, wanting to have their itch scratched on their ear. You know, I got, I got an itchy ear. Just kind of scratch it. I don't tell what you do. Just, just help me with that. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Preach the word. The motto of Dallas Theological Seminary is Karuksantan Logon, preach the word. Now, I'll still remember that day that I had the opportunity in chapel at Dallas Seminary to hear John Wolverd, you know, speak. And at the time, he was like 90, 100 years old, <laughs> I don't, 94, 96. You know, he, he's written all kinds of really good books, exposition of scripture. He was... Uh, um, president of Dallas Theological Seminary for two or three decades. You know, just a wonderful man of God. And, uh, you know, they wheel him up in this wheelchair to a microphone that's off to the side of the, uh, of the pulpit. And he's in a wheelchair, and they adjust it so it's right in front of his, his, his face. And, you know, I, we all lean forward because we're not sure we're going to be able to hear this, this older gentleman. And he looks, goes, leans into the microphone and says, Karuksantan Logon, preach the word. <laughs> and then he went on for several minutes with just one of the best expositions of Scripture on the parables of the sower. It was just, just incredible. Preach the word. Expository preaching teaches the principles of Scripture, but it also exhorts them to live by what scripture says and to get into the scriptures themselves to get into a small class or a small group setting where the the christian can grow in the grace and the knowledge of the lord jesus christ because if sunday morning is all the teaching of god's word that a person receives they are not as paul is going to say to timothy in first timothy chapter 4 verse 6 they are not being constantly nourished in the words of faith and of sound obedience we are to be constantly nourished. 
As critical and necessary as Ezra's expository preaching was, it was not enough for God's people. What I do on Sunday mornings, not enough for you. At the Chinese restaurant, the illustration kind of falls apart at this point. But how much better it would have been if I had availed myself to sitting next to someone who could explain it to me? If, if, and then if I had gone back on a regular basis and done the same, and that's why God provides so many gifted teachers in the body of Christ to say, oh, according to God's word, you don't want to eat that. <laughs> it's looking at you or whatever. Let me tell you what this is. And, ah, oh, this, is, this is how you are to nourish yourself from God's word. This is what it tells you to do. Well, we're starting to get a feel for expository preaching and what it is. Next Sunday, we're going to be looking at expository listening. And I've only heard that phrase a couple of times as I was thinking about it about a week and a half ago. I go, I wonder if anything on the Internet says anything about expository listening. I found a really good book on it. But uh, expository listening, I think as we develop that from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, we're going to have a really good idea of what expository preaching and listening is and what our responsibilities are as we come to hear God's Word and to experience Him on a Sunday morning. Oh, and by the way, you'll find in your sermon outline today, there's two more pages because this time it's a prayer guide. Last week was a study guide. This is a prayer guide. Something that, and I'd encourage you to do this, to, to each day pray about these specific things that it says in the prayer guide to read the passage of scripture that's listed there in your own copy of God's word. Read it there, meditate on it. If God brings up, a, gives you another passage of scripture to look up, look that one up as well. And I'd really encourage you to, to do that every day as you go into God's word this week. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for your word, that you haven't left us here, Father, to, to figure this church thing out on our own, to figure out Christianity, to figure out life at all. But, Father, you have given us your word, which is from you, Lord. It is your word. Father, how incredible, how wonderful that you would speak to us and that the Holy Spirit would explain it to us but that you have gifted godly preachers and teachers and others who come alongside us, Lord, and, and further explain your word to us, Father. Father, as we are talking about these passages of Scripture in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9 that talk about revival and the importance of, of God's word, Father, I pray that your word would do the work that you intend in each one of our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.